All right. Well, again, ladies, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks, Bill, the elders of Anchored, for the privilege to be with you tonight. Thanks, Donna. Um, now, tonight we are sort of continuing, and we're coming to the end of this study of the book that you've been studying. So it's, a, it's sort of a privilege to come towards the end and help you guys wrap this up. And I was tasked with sort of teaching and going over the last two chapters that you guys had, chapters 9 and 10, words for the wayward and words for the weeping. And, um, you know, the, the book does a good job, a nice job in this section, right? Like Donna said, this is the practical section of the book. The second half is very practical. First half is sort of building the theology of our words and who we are as Christians, who we are in Christ, the foundation of the words that are coming out of our mouth. And then the second half is very practical for those categories, And uh, the book does a nice job of really outlining the scriptures necessary for those categories. So you should. You should see that book as sort of a go-to, as sort of a template, if you will, uh, to potentially help someone and to help yourself through situations like that. Now, um, we start with wayward. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to sort of uh, go over again those chapters and sort of re-explain everything that was in there. I think it was pretty self-explanatory, and the categories are really nice and neat. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it from a a, a different perspective. Um, I'm going to hopefully build you ladies up, encourage you in a very strong way to see how all of this, the way we speak, the way we help anyone... Um, as the body of Christ, comes from our own personal life. Now, we know that. It comes from who we are in Christ. It comes from our love for Christ. It comes from us living this out. Right? If these things are not in place, we will not be as effective as we are designed to be unto the Lord in helping each other. These things need to be a part of our lives. These things need to be what are just naturally coming from us. So we take the pressure, we put it on ourselves, and we will naturally be useful to the kingdom. Amen? That's what we want. Um, now, obviously, there is a lot of usefulness in, in going through and studying to, to be able to present something to somebody who is struggling or whatnot. But again, coming from us is the ultimate avenue to bring help. Now, I'm just going to sort of highlight the words we have, and then we'll go from there. Now, we have wayward and we have weeping. Um, now, wayward, as you know, is simply this, someone who turns away right? It's, it's way, as in is shortened from away, and then words means direction, right? right? Such as onward or forward. So away, you're turning away, and then words into a direction. You're turning away from something. And ultimately, and biblically, this is speaking of somebody who is turning away from the direction of the Lord. And what are they doing? They are naturally turning away from and living contrary to the word of God, such as in the book, right? The example was a woman who was leaving her husband unbiblically. She was leaving or walking away from the pattern of the Lord, how the Lord would want her to handle that situation. She walked away. She is going wayward, right? And then the Christian's heart and desires to bring them back. But that's what wayward is. And they're leading, leaning on their own understanding. They're going their own route, Um, and ultimately, they're moving away from the Lord. And then in essence, what does that do? That places them in the sin of disobedience. So good luck with everything that comes from that, right? Um, Now, weeping, on the other hand, is not as clear. That picture we just saw is clearly a sinful or an ideal picture of what the Lord wants for our life. Weeping, on the other hand, is not as clear. Weeping, on the other hand, is not in essence a sinful thing. 
right? Weeping is actually a very biblical topic. Weeping is showing deep expression of emotion, deep sorrow, usually with the expression of tears. And weeping is very natural to us, is it not? Weeping is a natural emotion that we have as humans, and it's a part of our design that the Lord has given us. And Scripture is very clear about that. We know in John eleven thirty five that what? Jesus wept. Right off the bat, we know, not sinful. Why? Jesus never sinned. Weeping is not a sinful thing. Waywardness, sinful. Weeping, not sinful. John eleven thirty three tells us this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, what was his response? Condemnation. No. His response was he was deeply moved, and his spirit was greatly troubled at their weeping. Right? So we're now seeing the biblical response to somebody who's weeping. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Right? Clearly an instruction to come alongside someone who is weeping with weeping. So we understand that that is not a simple, sinful response. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says this, a time, of, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. All biblical times within someone's life all pointing to the simple fact that weeping in and of itself is not sinful. Now, when does weeping become sinful? Because it does. Just like anything, there can be a line when something becomes sinful. And weeping becomes sinful when it is sort of a hopeless weeping. It's gone from an emotional weeping that is connected to some sort of situation, and it has moved into sort of a a hopeless weeping. Now it's disconnected from God. When you disconnect from God and the result is weeping, we know that we're now not trusting in the Lord. Our weeping is hopeless, right? The fact that we weep is good, but the fact that we weep with God is what's good. We weep with trust. We weep with, right? We can weep at a, at a funeral, can't we? But we also come out of that with joy, knowing that if it's a believer, they're in heaven. So it's a weeping of a loss, which is a normal thing. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Right? And he wept when Lazarus died, knowing he was going to raise Lazarus. So we understand that weeping is a good thing. But weeping that is detached from trust in the Lord now becomes sinful. Now, the second half of your book is helpful, again, in addressing these specific categories. The worried and the weary, the wayward and the weeping, all of these things. But again, the most significant way to help someone through these situations, and really that's the direction of the book, is how can I absorb this information so that I can be of help? How can my words be useful to the kingdom? How can I give life giving words to somebody? And that's important. We want to do that for obvious reasons. But the most significant way to help someone through these situations is not simply just knowing biblical truth, not just simply knowing where the remedy is found in the Bible, not being able to quote from a book. It's living it out, right? It's not pointing to the tools that exist for somebody. It's sharing the tools that you actively have in your life that you are using that are at your disposal that have been time-tested, that are available. That is the ideal way. So tonight I want to encourage you to be pursuing the life that naturally does two things. It avoids the pitfalls that are described in this book, and then it naturally positions you to provide the help needed for those who are in those pitfalls. So it's a win-win. And I want to use the passage today that we saw at the beginning of your chapter 9 as sort of a jump-off 
as a jump off to sort of expand, and I want to build this beautiful picture of who we are as Christians and how it's designed to, again, help protect us from the pitfalls in life and then also to naturally position us to have the tools to help others. And we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, but your book highlights chapter, uh, verses 11 and, or 10 and 11, but we're going to expand on that whole section. We're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me there. And we'll go ahead and read it together. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. It says this, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Now to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit, inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for the one who desires life, to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the key to our verse here. I'm going to point out quickly, is verse 10. This is the key to understanding what Peter is sort of building in this section. Verse 10 says this, the one who desires life, to love and to see good days. This is what Peter is aiming towards. The ESV says this, for whoever desires to love life and to see good days. Now, Peter is quoting David from Psalm 34 here where David is giving personal testimony about his character and affirming the character of believers. Who doesn't desire to have a happy life? We should all have that desire. That's a good desire. It should be a natural inclination of the believer to have a good life, Um, to see life as a blessing, to see the beauty of what the Lord has created, to see his creation as a gift given to us to be enjoyed. Right To see the uniqueness of our skills and our abilities, to, to see the uniqueness of the church as something to be enjoyed. And not only that, but the relationship with the Lord to be enjoyed. Every element of our Christian faith is designed to create enjoyment. It's designed for us to be happy and joyful. I mean, we are reconciled with the Lord. I mean, that alone is just reason to rejoice. And like Ephesians says, all the spiritual blessings that we have These are reasons to rejoice, right? Everything is reason to rejoice. That's our starting place, that we see life as a joyful thing. In John 10.10, it says, "The The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Salvation is abundant life, abundant joy, abundant goodness, abundant anything positive you can think of, inherently wrapped up in salvation. And now Peter is using this sort of entire section um, to teach one how to position themselves for this life. He's saying you should want to have an enjoyable life. You should want to love life. That's a good thing to, to pursue. And, and what's the point of pointing that out? Because this is the opposite of somebody who is 
wayward and weary and weeping and all of those things, right? We're seeing a contrast between people who are living in those things and what the Bible says, and especially here, Peter saying that the Christians should be pursuing. And he gives us five principles for protecting us from going wayward and five principles from protecting us from ungodly weeping. So we want these in our hearts. We want these in our lives, and we want to pursue these things and commit to these things. And I want these things to go deep into your heart tonight, ladies. I want to charge you up. I want you to leave this place just motivated with this, to live this out, knowing that it's naturally going to position you to do everything your book is designed to encourage you to do. It's exciting. And um, again, it positions you to sort of... um, Um, help others, and it also positions you and protects you from these ungodly things. Here are your your five points. Number one is, and I made them real simple for you, humility. Point number one is humility, verse 8. Point number two is not retaliating, verse 9. Point number three is pure speech, verse 10. Number four is hatred of sin, verse 11. And number five is proper motives, verse 12. So let's jump in to our first point. Humility, humility. Verse 8 says this, Now to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now you'll notice right away that there are many other adjectives in this verse, but I am focusing here and I'm singling out humility. And the reason why I'm doing that is because the rest of these cannot and will not exist if we are not living in humility. You cannot properly help someone with your words if you do not have a foundation of humility in your heart. First off, we don't have salvation without humility, right? So we know that it all starts there. You will not be saved without humility. Why? Because we don't come to the cross unless we have been humbled by God, right? We don't acknowledge our complete and utter sinfulness and depravity without the Lord giving us humility to see that. Then we humble ourselves before the Lord, acknowledging that we have a need, a very important need, the need for salvation. So here we are humbled before the cross. This is humility. Now, humility is the foundation of all precautionary living. We need this in place. Because if you have some sort of difficulty in life, especially if there is sin involved, I can guarantee you can find, if you are truly honest with yourself, a lack of humility somewhere. So what's the solution? How do we do this? How do we ensure that we are living in humility? We do this by celebrating our salvation every single day of our life. Like actually doing it. Not just saying it. it. sounds nice. We would all agree that that's something to be done. But the, the question is, do we actually do this? Do we actually wake up every morning and say, Good morning, Father. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you that you have saved my sinning self. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. Thank you for the, for the gift of humility that I know I don't have inherently. Thank you. I give you my life. Help me to be faithful to you today. Do we purposefully commit to that each morning? Because we should. We should, and here's why. Look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. 
Peter gives us one of the most beautiful renderings of salvation. I love this. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance of incorruptible and undefiled and unfading having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. It's just so powerful. He's celebrating. This is a celebration of what salvation is and what we have. And it should be the most valuable possession that you possess. And this is something that you should be aware of in your life, that the most valuable possession that you have is your salvation. Because on your worst day, the worst day of your life, the truth that you have this should be enough to bring you through tears, even heavy weeping tears. It's that magnificent. It's that valuable. There is nothing, including weeping tears, that can stand toe-to-toe with the gift, the value of the gift of salvation. But this needs to come from a heart that is obsessed with our salvation. Are we obsessed with it? We should be. I love that concept. Right? What are we obsessed with in life? We can all find something that we're obsessed with or have been obsessed with or whatever. Should be our salvation. We should be waking up every morning just obsessed with this concept that I have this amazing, great gift. And this becomes the foundational tool to protect us, to help those who are weeping. Now, we can see that Peter is speaking with passion and confidence when he's celebrating this. You can see that there's strength and joy in this. Right? This person is humbly living at the foot of the cross. He has complete reliance on Christ for salvation. And he has complete reliance upon the direction for his life. Why? Because somebody who is living in humility, living at the foot of the cross, is convinced of his utter depravity. Praise God that we have a church that teaches doctrine. The doctrine of depravity is a vital, vital doctrine for you to understand. If you don't understand the doctrine of depravity, I highly recommend that you buy biblical doctrine, the big white systematic theology that we have, and read about it. Why? It's because when you understand the depths of your depravity, the complete and utter inability to go to God, the complete and utter lack of desire to go to, to go to God, you start to see that the thing that you have, this desire for Christ, is of the utmost value because you did not have it. You were an enemy of the Lord. And it begins to create a value to salvation that just grows and grows and that gratitude that grows. And we need that. That creates a a heart that is joyful and happy and rejoicing and motivated and strong. And the Lord deserves that from us. He deserves that we understand the significance of what he's done so that when we're saying thank you, it's not just, phew, thank you that I don't have to go to hell. It's thank you that you are so merciful. You are so kind and generous and gracious. And understanding your depravity also puts into perspective your own human thinking. In and of ourselves, you have no wisdom. No. Look at the world. Look at their wisdom. Look where they're going. Men are women. Women are men. 
that is utter depravity. It's insanity. Why is there value in pointing that out? Because somebody who is truly reliant upon the Lord, who understands that in and of themselves there is no wisdom and good in me outside of Christ, that person is reliant upon the instruction of the Scriptures, and that person is guarded and protected from going wayward. You want to go wayward? You want to go your own way? You want to turn away from the Lord and live in your own understanding? Well, then you don't have a proper understanding of your understanding. Get into the doctrine of depravity and understand that makes you reliant upon the Lord. Dare I move one inch from Christ? Shame on me for thinking for one second that I could move away from Christ in any sort of beneficial way that's not going to lead me into destruction. It's protective. It's protective. This prevents waywardness. Now, John 14, 15 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The wayward has lost an ounce of love for Christ. He's lost an ounce of reliance upon Christ. How can you love Christ, love him, desire him, yet do your own thing? They they can't coexist. If you love me, if you understand the gift of salvation, if you are truly grateful, you will, emphatically, will keep my commandments. Of course you will. Why? Because, number one, you're already humbly reliant upon him. And you already see his ways as way better than your own. And two, you want to honor him. Love for the Lord is a desire to want to honor him, want to be obedient. So you can see already how this must be in place, this humility must be in place for anything else to happen. So we need to check our hearts. We need to understand and check our humility and then as a, as a, refle- a reflection of our love for Christ. Am I loving Christ? Am I obsessed with salvation? Don't help somebody who's wayward come back to a place other than obsessed with salvation and loving Christ. You can only do that when you have it. Peter then says, like-minded. The next word is like-minded. What does that mean? We share this magnificent truth with each other. We all here are like-minded, brothers and sisters in Christ. We all share this magnificent truth. We all share the greatest gift. I mean, we should all just be jumping up and down, high-fiving all the time at the reality of what we have in Christ. Shouldn't be sort of something that we just rush off and we're, we sort of take for granted and it's just, you know, business as usual, we're all here. This should be something that's so exciting to us that I share this with you. Can't believe I have this. I can't believe I have this. I can't believe I have this. We have this. How exciting. We share the magnificent truth that we have, and then we also share our sinfulness. That's humility. And we should be eager to share this with each other. What do you mean, eager to share our sinfulness? Because every time I share my sinfulness, I'm simply boasting upon Christ. What does that also mean? It means I'm humble to deal with my sinfulness. I'm not hiding it. And if I'm not hiding my sin, I'm naturally putting myself in a position to work it out with you. And if you're doing the same, now we are in in humility working out our life together. 
out of our joy and like-mindedness that we are humble. Why, what are we trying to hide, right? We need, the way we can help somebody who is wayward is by simply acknowledging, hey, listen, I am just as capable of going wayward as you. We should be eager to do this with each other. And we should be naturally speaking truth in the most wonderful way, right? Speak truth in love, we know that. In the most wonderful way, this should be naturally outflowing this gratitude and this humility. What does he say? Sympathetic, brotherly, tenderhearted, obviously. Wouldn't that be the, the result of a humble heart who is boasting in Christ every morning? What's going to come out of that? Right? At some point, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. What's coming out of my mouth? What's coming out of my heart? Because if I truly understand the gift of Christ, it should be sympathetic, brotherly, tenderheartedness all the time. All the time. Is it happening? Are we listening to ourselves? So this humility, we have to have in place so that we can have this sympathetic, brotherly, tenderheartedness. And you can already see that this is building you up to be that person to speak words into somebody's life. All of these things are crucial. Our next point is this, not retaliating, not retaliating. Verse number nine, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Peter is saying, stop sinning back against those who sin against you. Because when you're doing that, you're having the same sinfulness in your response that they are having against you. You have the same sinfulness. Now he's talking about sin for sin, right? He's saying, if somebody is evil against you, you are giving the evil back. He's saying, stop doing that. People do that. We do that. We're guilty. We have to stop doing that. When you do that, you walk away from obedience, right? That's waywardness. You start walking away. So you can see already, again, Paul is giving us valuable foundational, seemingly simple tools that protect us from these things. Don't revile for revile. Don't give evil for evil. When you do that, you are shifting away. So now we have to check our hearts, right? We need to ask ourselves, am I doing that? Am I, am I responding to people with what they're giving me? Am I giving frustration to frustration, right? Am I giving anger for anger? Whatever it is, we have to check our hearts because it's sinful. And what we're doing is we are at inching away from the Lord. Inch, 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 inch can lead someone right out the door. That's waywardness. We don't want that, right? We want to protect against that. So understanding our responses, and this obviously ties into the concept that you guys are studying your words, right? And how important words are, but more importantly, the heart. Now, What do we say, what are we doing when we, when we give evil to evil or revile to revile? It's just selfishness, right? Who are you to speak that to me? Who are you to say that to me? Hmm, I'm angry. Who are you to treat me that way? Who are you to act that way to me? To me, selfish, pure selfishness, right? I'm just pointing that out because we need to be humble 
and be willing to see what our motives are when we're sinning because we really want to obey this passage because this passage, again, is all geared up towards producing the life of joy and peace and happiness and blessing that the Lord wants us to have. I almost sound sort of charismatic, but it's true. They just take it to an extreme that it doesn't need to go. The Lord does want us to be happy. The Lord does offer us blessing and truth, but those things are founded in obedience. It's founded in in relishing salvation. It's not founded in relying upon the Lord's blessing of material things and health and wealth. No, it is foundational in the gospel. It is foundational in the truths that we're seeing. It's foundational in the joy of wanting to live in obedience, right? We should want to not give back evil for evil. And we're going to get more into that in a minute, right? When we're doing that, we are now putting ourselves before them. When we give evil for evil, we're putting ourselves before them out of offense or whatever, just like they put themselves before us to initiate that. Now, what should be our response? What should be our response? Obviously not evil for evil, but Peter says, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Giving a blessing, he says, instead of giving evil for evil, Instead of giving frustration back to frustration, instead of giving gossip back to gossip, instead of giving anger back to anger, instead of giving sarcasm back to sarcasm, all of those things, instead of giving any matching sinful response to sin coming your way, let's put it this way. What is your response anytime sin comes your way from somebody else? What's the response according to the word of God? Give a blessing. Give a blessing. What? Give a blessing? Giving a blessing is obviously referring to our speech, right? Are you having difficulty with someone? Obviously, we all have difficult people in our lives. You should desire to bless them. Every person in your life that you have some sort of frustrating thought towards, whoever it is, family member, spouse, brother, sister, extended family, anyone who you have any tension with ever, forever, your response should be, I want to bless that person. Oh, so convicting. Who's, who's doing that so well? Praise God for his graciousness and his kindness and his patience with us. But I will say this, you should see yourself improving. Don't you dare for a second get caught up in the Lord's graciousness and just say, well, I'm a sinner, he knows. Depravity, I studied it, that's me. Studied it in the big white book. It's cool, Lord's gracious, thank God. No, yes, that's true. But we are called to make progress. We are called to true sanctifying change, and it is possible, and it should be happening. And you should be tracking with it as well in your life, by the way should be something that you are very hyper aware of. Every element of your life that the Bible talks about, your speech, your heart, your relationships, all of these things, you should be actively tracking within your heart, right? It shouldn't just be, you know, when, when Pastor John gets to it, I'll think about it. No, every single day we should be thinking about these things. Every time we talk to someone, we should be so hyper aware. Am I being obedient? Am I growing? Where am I struggling? Well, wow, sounds like somebody who needs to be really humble and really hyper aware of their sinfulness. But you will do that 
when you know that that is obedient to the Lord, when that is honoring to him. And you will want to do that because you love the Lord. And why do you love the Lord? Because of the magnificently valuable gift of salvation. That is always going to be the key. That's why obsession over salvation is the key. I'm going to write a book, Obsession Over Salvation. Um, Giving blessing. Giving blessing. Your desire should be to bless them to their face and behind their back. That should be your desire to bless them. The person who is struggling with worries, weariness, weeping, should be directed to edify others. That's the remedy. Edify others. Give loving speech. And we do that by removing the focus off ourselves and putting the focus on God. Matthew 5, 43 to 48 says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love this so much. Ready? Check this out. Sons of God. Sons of God. This, 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 so that you may be sons. What does that mean? Children walking in his father's footprints. Right? Beautiful just picture that we have even at the human level. It's a beautiful picture. Children following in their father's footsteps, eager to be like dad, eager to be like their father. This is such a very important biblical principle. Ephesians 5.1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, what's neat about that verse, it says, as beloved children. The beloved is from God's perspective. We are his beloved children. We're called to be imitators of him by the way he loves us as children. We are his beloved. And what did Father do that we should be so eager to replicate? He gave undeserved mercy. He gave undeserved mercy. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 19.11. I love this picture I'm going to build for you, ladies. Proverbs 19.11, it says this, A man's insight makes him slow to anger, and it is his honor slash glory, depending on your, your version, it is his honor or it is his glory to overlook a transgression. I love this. Now, imagine yourself in all your glory. Now, we don't have glory, right? God is glory. God deserves glory. All the the glory deserves to God. We have no inherent glory. That's not what this is suggesting. But what it is giving you is giving you a picture of yourself in the greatest possible light or the greatest possible image of yourself, right? If you can envision yourself kind of like, like a superhero, all of you ladies here, just envision yourself as a superhero, right? Your hair is like blowing and you got a cape and you're standing there strong, confident, like a woman, strong woman, I mean, like a strong woman. You are women. Now, This is the way, this is sort of like your dream image, right? You're you're following me? Like, this is the dream image of yourself. Like, like, think about if I could just be this. If I could just be her. She's so magnificent and strong and amazing. She's incredible. That's my dream. This picture of ourselves. 
in all of my glory, the greatest image of myself that I could ever imagine, in all the glory of who, of who I could be, what would be your superpower? Well, the verse tells us, your superpower in the greatest image that could ever be made of yourself is the superpower to overlook a transgression. That should be your greatest desire. I'm a superhero with the power of just forgiving. Overlooked, 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 overlooked. Like a superhero would do. Like, it's not even a thing. It's so fast. I already forgave. Gone. It's an amazing picture, but that's the picture of the Lord. Did the Lord sit around and, and, and contemplate whether he was going to give us mercy? Does he contemplate whether he's going to give us mercy and forgiveness throughout our day-to-day? Absolutely not for one second. Mercy, mercy. We already have it. We live in forgiveness already, by the way. Past, present, future sins, forgiven, done, gone, which means come, go ahead, sin against me. I try. I'm already forgiven you which means I'm already prepared to not respond in any other way than I would respond if I completely forgave you. Done. That's me in all my glory. That's what I want. That's what I want to wake up every morning wanting to be that guy so bad. I put a poster on the wall. Right? That's what we should want. And that's what God wants. It tells us because that's what the Lord did. The greatest image of ourselves is of somebody forgiving, eager to forgive. And basically, what are we doing? We're giving the mercy and the grace that we have been given. Dare we ever not give what we have been so graciously given? What we do is we live here at the cross in submission and humble gratitude. Thank you, Father, for giving me mercy. And then when people come, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Then we go back, uh-uh, uh-uh. Come back and just say, hold, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. What? What is that? For one second that we would come up from our posture of submission, to the Lord, to reject giving mercy to somebody. How selfish, how self-centered. We should be Christ-centered. Now, this is protective. This is protective, right? All, remember, all of this is, is designed to be positioning us to have this life where we are not weary, we are not wayward, but we're living in joy, we are living in, in happiness that, that the Lord wants us to, and this is protective because it protects us from the vast array of difficulties in relationships, right? The vast majority of our difficulties in life are with other people. It just is what it is. Right? It's just people sinning against people, and it's exhausting. It is. We all know that. But we have to get on board with this because if we are just forgiving and actually living in that forgiveness gladly, these things are not affecting us in the same way. You will not be as sad and weary. You will not be as bothered. You will not be as anything negative if you are just forgiving up front, not allowing those things to affect you in that way. It's very powerful. It almost seems impossible, but this is an extremely biblical, extremely real biblical element. It's protective. Now, those things, those difficult relationships will pale in comparison to another element of this forgiveness. Not only should we see the glory of ourselves, just forgiveness, forgiveness, we should be extremely satisfied in this forgiveness, satisfaction in life is a very important thing. We need to be satisfied in Christ, content in the Lord, right? And then 
satisfied with everything else that's coming our way. And you're only going to be satisfied when you are giving out what the Lord has called us to do, to give. And that's forgiveness. And satisfaction is going to guard you from so many things. And he says this will produce blessing. Peter says this will produce blessing. So let us remember that God is a good parent. Is he not? Let us remember that God's a good parent. The Lord does not bless bad behavior. He wouldn't be a good father. Neither would we. We understand that concept. He doesn't bless bad behavior. Obedience produces blessing, right? That's what he is saying. This is about a heart-filled desire to honor the Lord, and we trust that it produces blessing. And it's not just material blessing. It's the blessing of not being negatively affected by all the crazy sinners that are all around us because I'm just given forgiveness, and I'm just living in the joy of my salvation, and I'm obsessed with it. can't touch me. That's a blessing. That's a blessing, right? It's not material things. Those things come and go, but it is the satisfaction and contentment of living in Christ that protects me from the things that cause us to go wayward and to be weary and to weep, and it helps us to come out of weeping. We know it's not sinful to weep, but we don't get stuck in weeping. We come out of it because we have all of these things. It's okay to want blessing. In fact, we should, just like David did. And we see in verse 10, our next point. Our next point. Pure speech, verse 10. The one who desires life to love and to see good days, right? Actually, it says for the one. Which is ty- when you see that four, it's tying back to verses eight and nine. So we understand that verses eight and nine are contributing to this verse, and then the rest of the verses after it are all contributing to this verse. So we could say, in order to have a life of love and good days and, and long days and a fulfilled blessing, we must keep our tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Okay, more about the tongue, more about the speech. Good, very, very um, tightly tied to what you guys are studying. Now, this is twofold because our speech is very important. I think you've all learned that from the book. It's very important. Why? Because out of our mouth comes all of that wonderful stuff that I just described. Isn't that wonderful that I can share all of these things with my mouth? And surely, if those things are protective for me, it's going to be the remedy for somebody who is struggling. Now, Your entire study has been about the importance of words. And here we see a joy-filled, obedient life that's reliant upon words. Why? This seems so important. It's so, verse 10 tells us, right? The one who desires life, the one who desires long days and love and enjoys life must keep his tongue from evil. It seems very reliant upon words. And it is. Why? Because it's a reflection of what? Mm -hmm. Matthew 12, 35 says this. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil out of the heart. We can't be face down at the cross, yet be leaning over to the other person on their needs, gossiping. We can't be humble about our own sinfulness, yet be sarcastic and self-righteous, right? 
We can't be resting in the peace of Christ, but be anxious and harsh. And we can't be content with life and be negative and unhappy. And if these things are a natural part of our speech, we cannot expect to naturally be helping others with our words. Words are so important because a part of living a blessed life is living it together. So if your words are consistent with what's in your heart, salvation and joy, it's going to naturally be outpouring in your speech, naturally blessing each other. And that's very protective because we're just naturally in each other's life. It's discipleship. We're naturally helping, praying, rejoicing, honoring, edifying. We're naturally doing these things and it protects us. And it helps. It helps others. Our words should always be seasoned with grace and truth and always be helpful and kind. And they should always be edifying. Our words are so important. There's so much text on words. I know you guys have seen so much about it. I'm not going to go through those, but I am going to say this. Ephesians 4.29, what does it say? It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? So number one, let me break that down. Right? No corrupting talk. No. None. Zero. Think about that. No corrupting talk. Corrupting talk is any talk that is in opposition to biblical teaching on what your speech should be. Any. Harsh, impatient, sarcastic, passive-aggressive. Anything that is in opposition to the teaching of the Word of God is corrupting talk. Who's guilty? We're all. But we need to be better. We need to be motivated. But only such is good for building up. That's edification. Everything that should be coming out of your mouth should only have one purpose, to edify someone else. It should be edifying. It should be beneficial to that person. It should be helpful, enjoyable, kind, easy to hear, right? It should be all of those above things, but it should be edifying to them. It should build them up. It should be positive. It should be useful. Right? You ha- we should be thinking. This is what I mean by being hyper-aware of all of these categories in our life. We should be also hyper-aware of the words that are coming out of my mouth. What am I about to say? Is, it, does, is this going to edify this person? Is this good for them right now in this moment? Is it? Is it? And it says that as fits the occasion. Here's where the hyper-awareness concept comes from. As it fits the occasion. The occasion is right now. And then the next moment. And then the next. And then the next. It's every moment of your life is an occasion. And whoever the Lord puts in front of you is an occasion. And your words are designed to edify that person, whoever it is, whenever it is. So you need to be what? Present. You need to be aware of the situation and who the person is so that you can help. And this is where just the general devotion to the church and to the body of Christ comes in because if we're living the way we should, high-fiving, celebrating salvation, guess what? We know each other. And then our humility is, is obviously just freeing us to talk about sin and our struggles because we all share it. We all, we're all the same here. All of our sin is exactly the same. We've all done the same stuff, just in different ways. So we can share that and we can help each other. And if we're doing that and we're in each other's life and we know, now I can, in this occasion, edify you. How's this going? How are you doing? How's that thing? 
How's this going? How's your husband? How's your wife? All of these things. But I can't do that if I'm not invested in the occasion and invested in the church. We should just be eager to be in each other's lives. It just should be so normal and natural to us. Why? Because, guys, we share the greatest thing that anybody could ever be given. We should be running around like giddy kids all the time, just being like, I can't believe I share this with you, and you share this with me. This is amazing. I know. It's a beautiful picture. Only edifying words that fits the occasion, which means we need to be present. We need to be good listeners. We need to want to do that. Well, what else is edifying? What else is edifying? We're talking about words here. What else is edifying? Worship. Worship is edifying in terms of words. What are edifying words? Worship. The greatest way to stay away from waywardness is worship. Why? Because when you are worshiping, you are keeping your eyes on God. This is very important. Right? This is where we start to see practically these wonderful big things. Worship is wonderful. God deserves worship, and we all will do that. Now we understand that, and, and God requires worship. He calls us to worship him. And we think, okay, God, he's God. He deserves that. I want to give that. But we have to understand in every command that the Lord gives us, there's infinite wisdom that is designed to be to our benefit. He's saying, guys, worship me. Okay, fine, I'll worship you. Why? You know, because you deserve it, but why else? Because he's saying, trust me. Worshiping me protects you. Protects you because you cannot worship God without keeping your eyes on God, which is the opposite of taking your eyes off God and going your own route, which is waywardness. Protects you every morning waking up. Praise you, Lord. Thank you for the gift of salvation. I am putting my eyes directly on him. I'm not going anywhere. And in my acknowledgement of that salvation is a package deal. So I'm acknowledging all at once my sinfulness, my depravity, my need for him, his infinite wisdom, my lack of wisdom. I'm not going anywhere. We should be affirming this every morning. That's worship, keeping our eyes on the Lord. It protects us from going wayward. And it also positions us. If I'm worshiping the Lord in my heart and just in my day-to-day, I'm not, think, I'm not saying, Oh, the Lord is so magnificent and gracious. Father, thank you, thank you so much. Hey, right? I'm not shifting like that. (laughs) We shouldn't be shifting like that. It's funny, but like we do it. We're like all bipolar in our spiritual life. (laughs) And we shouldn't be. But if we're truly worshiping the Lord, it protects us because our speech will be worshiping. And edifying, and that's naturally beneficial to somebody struggling, right? So we think about these things here. Let me emphasize this point again, right? Your book is very clear about what you need to be, you know, the words are powerful, and, right, we have a call to, to, to go into each other's lives, and we do. But the point of what we're doing tonight is to understand that if we are just living obediently, and we are growing in maturity, and we are applying these things, we're just naturally doing that. Because the question is, well, how do I do it? How do I do it? The the answer is, you just should already be doing it. It should just be a part of your life, right? And that sounds simple. It sounds oversimplified, but it's not. It's profound. And if it is seemingly simplified to you, you're not understanding how the Lord has designed us to function, right? The people, I work in the counseling department under Bill. That's my job. I counsel all day long. And people call into the church and Everybody who has issues, they call us because they trust Pastor John and his ministry goes everywhere. So everybody knows him, they call us and they talk to me. And what, what is their problem? 
right? Their problem is most of the time, one of the most common denominators is that they are disconnected from the church. One of the most common denominators. You have a church? No, I'm in between churches. Well, how long have you been in, in between churches? Five years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years. I kid you not. And you're thinking, you can't function without the church. Why? Because the church with the people living faithfully is designed to edify you, protect you, nurture you just naturally. Not just in counseling, just naturally. Protects us. It's amazing. So worship. Let's go to our next point. Got to move fast here. Um, Our next point, hatred of sin. Hatred of sin. Verse 11, he must turn away from evil and do good he must seek peace and pursue it. Living a joyous life, a joyful life of rejoicing, requires one very important thing, turning from sin. Because we acknowledge in our depravity that we will sin. We are sinners. We will sin. And if we're going to live a joyous life, we surely cannot be living in sin. We should be turning from sin. He says here, turning away from evil. And this requires something very important that we should also be very hyper aware of. It's this, hatred of sin. Hatred of sin. Something that maybe we don't think about all the time, but we should. Romans 12.9 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. It's a very powerful word for hating evil and hating sin in our life. Now, hating sin prevents the believer from pursuing and living in sin. It's protective. I'll trade you. Thank you. Sorry. Hating sin prevents the believer from pursuing and living in sin. Hating sin prevents the believer from living in and pursuing sin. I'm serious. It's very important. Now, we would all agree sin bad, but how many of us actually hate sin? Like legitimately, consciously, in in hyper-awareness every day, hate sin. Just hate it. Our sin. Now, this should be a natural extension of our salvation, right? Again, another reason why being obsessed with our salvation is so important because it naturally brings these things to the forefront of our life. The natural extension of salvation should be hating the sin. Why? Because we should hate the thing that is against our Father in heaven. We should hate naturally hate the thing that was damning us to hell. We should hate that thing. It is a sin against God. It is in opposition to His ways. It goes against everything that He stands for and who He is. And we should hate that very much so. So, we should hate this sin because we love the Lord and we show our love in many specific ways. And what's interesting is that Peter here is instructing this to a group of people who are suffering, right? First, keep that in mind. People are suffering that he's writing this letter to. And in the beginning of this letter, he says this, in 1 Peter 1.15, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Here they are, struggling. 
I'm going to write a letter to these struggling folks. Try to encourage them, build them up in their time of need. Okay, here it goes. You ready? Dear folks who are struggling, this is going to help you. Be holy. Be holy, just like God is holy in all of your conduct. (laughs) Be holy. We're under intense uh, pressure here. We're getting persecuted. People are dying. Be holy. Be holy. Be holy. Be holy. Our job is to be holy. You cannot be holy if you and, and not hate sin at the same time. It's impossible. And this protects us, right? Living in holiness protects us from so many difficulties in life. How? I'm going to show you. I love this too. Ephesians 6 tells us something very, very important. Ephesians 6. This is the armor of God. Verse 14. It says this. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Our verse says, turning away from evil, turning away from evil. Now, this is one and the same in pursuing righteousness. Okay, so I want you to see turning away from evil as the same as pursuing righteousness. So yes, I'm pursuing righteousness in life, obedience, uh, love for the Lord, and turning away from evil, right? They go hand in hand. It is a package deal for pursuing righteousness. And here, the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesians to put on this thing called the breastplate of righteousness. He's saying, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, he's not saying put on the righteousness of God, right? We have different options here in terms of what the righteousness means. Right? We have the righteousness of God. He's not saying put on the righteousness of God because we already have the righteousness of God imputed to us through Christ. He's talking to believers here. They already have that. That's not something you need to put on. I need to wake up every morning and put on my salvation. It's on me. It's not going anywhere. The Holy Spirit's inside. Right? So I have the righteousness imputed to me. And he's not saying put on your own righteousness. He's not saying wake up each morning and put your own righteousness on. Why? Because I ain't got none, and neither do you. So there's no righteousness inherent to me that I can put on. So what righteousness is he speaking about that he's telling me to put on, actively put on? And it's this. It's living out righteousness. God's righteousness in and of himself, the righteousness imputed to me through Christ, and then our call to live righteously. Live righteously. Um, Living righteousness. That's being holy. That's being holy for God in heaven is holy. And we see that this is a part of the armor of the Lord, right? So this breastplate is protective armor. This breastplate of righteousness is armor, and we are protected by it. So here we are putting on the breastplate of righteousness, living out righteousness in order to protect us. How does that, how does living out righteousness protect us? Because when we are pursuing righteousness actively every day in a real way, we have what? Very specific goals in mind. Very specific goals to do all that is instructed in Scripture, right? And when we do that, when we are actively every day, very purposefully, goal-oriented in living out the Scriptures, we are doing something that enables us to more easily see what Ephesians 6 calls the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil, which means what? The sinful desires of his schemes, the sinfulness of the world, the sinful desires of my own heart, 
the sinful temptations that come from others. When I have the righteousness on my chest and I am pursuing righteousness, I can more easily identify all of these things and I can more easily avoid them and and move away from them. That's why pursuing righteousness is so valuable because we can identify lies. We can identify falsehood. We can identify sin that much quicker. Bounces off our goal of living righteous helps us to turn away from sin, living in righteousness, being holy, like Peter says, for the Lord is holy. We can do as our verse says, turn away from them. Now, ladies, this is an everyday thing, an everyday living. You have to understand, the Christian life is an all-encompassing battle. We should be putting on this Armor, and if you read through Ephesians 6, you understand that it says all the armor. We don't want to be walking around with one or two pieces hanging off. We want to be very thorough, right? The Lord's glory is at stake. We want to be doing this every day. Do you think this way? Do you have this goal of living righteously every day with goals and seeing the Bible? See, when you have the goal of living out righteousness, when that is your goal out of your love for Christ and your desire to honor Him, all of a sudden this thing is gold. This is gold. Because it gives me everything I need to know in order to do it. And that's why a church like this is so valuable because it's actually giving us what we need to help us to do this thing. And that's satisfying. And that is all encompassing about living this life of joy and protecting us from all of those sinful things. So Paul says, put it on. It's purposeful. It's active. Now, our final point is this. Five, uh, point number five is <clears throat> proper motive. Proper motive, it says this, for the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears attend their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm going to keep it simple on this. What is Paul pointing to here? He is pointing to a life that acknowledges God for who he is. Now, that's a very common theme in your book, right? Understanding who God is and what God provides and our peace and joy that comes from that and, and, and the protection of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord and understanding His mercy and His grace and His goodness. All of those things are designed to help us through all of the different issues in life. So here he is pointing again, again to living a life that acknowledges God for who He is. And it says here, even specifically, God sees all and He hears all. God sees all and He hears all. Right? It just points to two very two of of many of the Lord's attributes, but on purpose, because we should be living with these two simple realization, right? They're simple attributes of His, but they're sort of all-encompassing. Why? Because He sees everything that you do, and He hears everything that comes out of your mouth, Right? So all of this study about words and all of these things right, should be very, we should be very in, uh, inflective, looking into our lives and what are we saying. And then we have the heavy, heavy-duty reality that God knows every word. And he hears. It's in his ears. That's heavy. Right? All of our actions, this should be serious motivation. This should be serious motivation. It is a heavy reality. And it's something that we should contemplate seriously. But what else does living with God so closely produce? Joy, peace. Why? Because these things protect us. Living with God so closely is protective, right? We're instructed to do it, but it's protective. 
living with God, knowing that he hears us, and then including all of the different attributes of who he is gives us protection, and that should give us confidence, and that should fight against our fear and our anxiety, that should bring comfort and joy. Now, this is living with God, right? Hearing, seeing, very, very important elements of our existence, right? But, but we understand these things. It's very personal, these two tools of ours. We see and we hear. They're very important to our existence and our, our relationships. So we have to see the same with the Lord. Now, in essence, living with the Lord. Now, Psalm 16.8 says this. I love this verse too. Psalm 16.8 says, I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Setting the Lord before us is active. And what does that mean? God doesn't go anywhere. He's omnipresent. He lives inside of us. We don't have to pray that he comes. We don't have to pray that the Holy Spirit comes like some church does. He's here. He exists. He's everywhere. He is inside me. So what is this speaking about? Again, this is pointing to our uh, active living, our obedience of actively pursuing the Lord. Setting him before us is very active. Right? Again, waking every morning, being thankful for our salvation, and then setting the Lord before us. Psalm 71.8 says this, My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Is that you? Is your mouth filled with praise every day? Because when you're praising, you are taking the Lord and you are setting him right before you. And how protective is that? Because I'm not praising the Lord and then peeking around to yell at someone or, or, or peek around and gossip. So we want to set the Lord. Is this you, ladies? We want to, we want to commit to this beautiful picture. Romans 12.1 says this, and I promise I'll end soon. Uh, Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? So a part of our worship, a part of setting the Lord before us, a part, a part of living with God, knowing who he is, is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? That is just our obedient living. That is living obediently unto the Lord. Again, all of this contributing to being protective now, lady, again, the, the, the point of this passage today is to connect to your book in the way that a life that is truly devoted to righteousness and truly consistent, and that's direction, not perfection, consistent will both protect you from being wayward, it will protect you from being weary, it will protect you from weeping sinfully, it will protect you from worrying, it will protect you from sinfully wanting. It will protect you from whining. It will protect you from wagging the finger. Or whatever other W you can think of. This life, living a life of righteousness, is always going to be the key, the preventive key. And it will also naturally position you to have these things flourishing in your life and they become tools needed to help someone in need. Why? Because when you are actively fighting for them, right? Because life is hard, right? Life is full of difficulties, and that's normal, and it should cause joy. But the normal difficulties of life 
that help us to actively fight for all of these principles should cause joy. But they can only cause joy when you desire what they are meant to produce. Let me say that again. The difficulties in life that are natural to life are designed to do something very specific and bring us joy. That sounds weird. Why are you saying that? How does this fit in? Because of what difficulties produce. Peter tells us in the beginning of our book, writing to those who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, election, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, unto the obedience of Christ. We were saved so that we could be obedient to the Lord. That's why you were saved, to be obedient. What's your duty? What's your job? To be obedient unto the Lord. And all situations that can cause any of the W's are designed by God for your sanctification, which is equivalent to obedience. I want that obedience. I want that sanctification, is what we should be saying. I want to be conformed into the image of Christ, right? And so should you. We should be saying, Lord, bring on the difficulties in life. (laughs) I know, it's not a natural thought. No, but we should want them. We should count it all joy when we meet various trials. Why? Because it's meant to produce the thing that we want the most, spiritual maturity. You cannot grow without spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity brings glory to God. And that should be our top, top desire. And growing in these things helps us to do that, right? And when you are growing through difficulties, only then can you truly sympathize and empathize with somebody who is going through struggles and then lovingly use your own experiences and struggles to help them and come alongside them, which again is true natural discipleship. So we want to see these five elements of the Christian life, humility. Not retaliating in our speech, but having pure speech. Hating sin and having proper motives of who God is and living for him, seeing this life of righteousness as a way that will protect us from all the W's and then position us to truly, naturally live out the things that people need when they're going through difficulties. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to see your pattern or the pattern that you've given us to live righteously. And we want to live righteously unto your glory, Father. Out of our gratitude for salvation, the greatest gift that could ever be given that you so freely gave to us, we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We say thank you for choosing us when we did not deserve it and could never earn it, but you so graciously gave it to us, Lord. Let this produce a love and a desire to live for you, to honor you that we truly live in. Lord, and let these principles be deep in our heart. Let us pursue these things knowing, Lord, that it just positions us to function as the church in such an edifying and wonderful way. In a way that we want, we see the the beauty in that. We see the beauty in your wisdom, Lord, and how you use these things naturally to just position us to love each other and to help each other. So, Father, thank you for these ladies and their devotion to you, their devotion to learning. Thank you for our church 
and all of our leaders, Lord, who are here to position us, to help us be positioned to bring you glory. Bless them. Bless their time of discussion. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.